Dear Lord, we just thank you for a gorgeous day, for cooler weather, for uh, the chance of us to gather together to study your word and to, to share um, some of the wisdom that you would have us glean from this uh, study today. Thank you for friends far and near and for the ability to use this technology to join us together as your family. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen here. Today we get to look at the story of Peter and Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. And I'll read this in two parts. And so we'll kind of read and talk about part one, then we'll go into part two. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. One afternoon at about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? He answered, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa for a certain Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon Tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had left, he called two of his slaves and a devout soldier from the ranks of those who served him. And after telling him everything, he sent them to Joppa. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again a second time, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times, and the thing was suddenly taken up into heaven. Now, while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision he had seen, suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house and were standing by the gate. They called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? They answered, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to this house and hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in and gave them lodging. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and stop there. And um, I'm going to do a little bit of teaching on this first part of Acts, but again, I just want to remind everyone that the richest learning happens when we all bring our questions and insights. And so I'm just going to kind of prime the pump here uh, to get us started, but I want you to pay attention and to bring your own insights to the conversation. So we start with a man by the name of Cornelius, 
And Cornelius is a Gentile. He is a God-fearer. And so he is not Jewish, but rather someone who believes in the God of Israel and who worships the God of Israel. Um, and so he is praying at three o'clock. This is part of the Jewish hour of prayer. He is giving alms. And so he is observing traditional forms of Jewish piety. And we're told that he is well spoken of by the Jewish nation uh, or by the people of Israel. Uh, and so this is a man who has some credibility and is known for being a God-fear, but he is a Gentile. He is not a circumcised member of the people of Israel. And therefore, he is outside of the covenant. Um, and there's always been, you know, a distinction between Gentiles and Jews. And so the force of this passage is going to be to really open up fully a path for the full welcome of the Gentiles into the church. And as Cornelius is praying, uh, he encounters an angel of God. Um, angels play a pretty prominent role in Acts. Uh, it was an angel who directed Philip to talk to the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, and so angels, you know, are uh, after the ascension saying, why do you look up, you know, staring into heaven? Um, um, and, and so this is just Luke's way of reminding us that there is a very supernatural component to the church, especially right now as the church spreads. But, you know, whenever Cornelius sees this angel, he doesn't, um, you know, get warm, fuzzy feelings. Whenever anyone encounters an, an angel uh, in the Bible, usually they're filled with terror. You know, these are terrifying uh, angelic beings, um, and people always feel great fear. And uh, the angel essentially tells Cornelius that God has heard his prayers and alms and that he's got some work to do uh, and that he is to send for a certain Simon Peter uh, who is lodging with Simon a tanner. Now, what's interesting is that even though Cornelius is a God-fearer, uh, chances are he really hasn't heard uh, much about, you know, Jesus the Christ as the potential Messiah of Israel. He's just um, uh, a normal Gentile who is seeking to observe Jewish piety. But part of what Luke is doing, remember, is to uh, bring light to the fact that this is the way that God's covenant with Abraham is moving forward. And so for Cornelius to be welcomed into the people of Israel, Cornelius will be welcomed into what at this point is just called the way, um, centered around Jesus. Um, the next day, um, so uh, Peter is praying on the roof, and this is when he has the vision, and the, the voice tells Peter to kill and eat. And for those of you who haven't read the book of Leviticus in a while, uh, there are some pretty clear rules about what kind of food you can and cannot eat. And part of these uh, food laws were what made the people of Israel distinct. And I think it's really interesting where Peter says, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. You know, part of what that tells me, and I'm going to be curious if y'all read this the same way, is that even though... Um, Jesus and his apostles got into all sorts of trouble with how they'd break the law, right? In terms of touching the unclean and eating food on the Sabbath. It seems from Peter's response here that uh, he never has broken the food laws, that Peter always ate kosher, that that was one law that Peter did not break. 
<coughs> the angel says to Peter, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. Now, on the surface, the angel is talking about food, but of course, um, the meaning here is going to be greater, that that which people have been calling unclean uh, are the Gentiles. And um, what God has made clean, it's not just food, right? It's the welcoming of Cornelius and the uncircumcised uh, Gentiles like him into the covenant. That's what this is really about. It's not really about food. It's about welcoming Cornelius and the uncircumcised Gentiles into the covenant community. Um, so Peter's really uh, puzzled about what to make of the vision and, you know, kind of in perfect timing, that's when the men that Cornelius sent uh, come to Peter and they basically um, uh, tell him that um, um, Cornelius, a centurion and an upright God-fearing man uh, has had a vision. Uh, and so Peter invites them in and gives them lodging. Um, two, two quick points before we kind of talk about this. One is just a, a little footnote of gave them lodging. I think it's important to remember that hospitality is at the heart of Jewish piety. And so to welcome in the stranger, to give them lodging, um, this is something that really seems to be at the heart of um, the ethics of, um, of uh, the people of Israel. And so Peter exhibits that quality. The other thing I just want to note is that uh, in verse 7, when the angel um, spoke to Cornelius, Cornelius then sent two of his slaves and a devout soldier from the ranks who served him. That's just a reminder that the gospel was first proclaimed into a world where these class distinctions were really important, and that part of the force of the gospel is going to be to break these distinctions down. You know, Paul will later say, in Christ, there is no longer. Greek nor Jews, slave nor free, male nor female. And so part of the radical movement happening here is that these traditional distinctions, in this case between Jew and Gentile, uh, are going to be broken down. Um, I'm going to go ahead and just pause there, and I'm curious what you see in this passage and where it strikes your interest. I, um, it, after a, a great sermon today, by the way, and the scripture was so beautiful, it re, um, the, the phrase, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. I think that kind of echoes we're uh, all, all children of God. And, and I don't, I don't know that I've ever seen that as, as meaning anything except the, the law. Um, so that's a, that's a beautiful way to begin, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I, I think it's just really important, you know, to name that these, you know, to, um, whenever Jesus says to Nicodemus, you got to be born again. What we forget is that for the people of Israel, it was one's first birth, right? Literally a, a, a physical birth into the people of Israel that marked them as part of the covenant. And, you know, to, to be Jewish or to be of the people of Israel was everything. Um, and the Gentiles were unclean. That is kind of how I, I think, at least in part, 
um, it, it was thought of. And, and that's painting really broad brushstrokes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so whenever we think about the distinctions in our world, you know, in the midst of our polarized world, the distinction between, uh, between races, the distinction between political parties, um, or, or whatever distinction you can think of, it's always important to remind people that the distinctions we face kind of in our culture pale in comparison to this barrier between kind of the circumcised people of Israel and the Gentiles. And that only a supernatural work of God would graft the Gentiles into the covenant community. And it took something like this, right? It took angels, it took visions, it took a clear word from God. This wasn't something that any Jew would kind of dream up on his or her own, you know, in the name of being a more inclusive community. This was just a radical shift, right, that took place uh, within um, the people of Israel. Yeah, I think, John, you've made really an important point, and I'd like to just underline it by saying, well, what are the point of the dietary laws and all the rest of that? The point of those things is to mark Israel off. They're not like everybody else. Yeah. And so when Peter gets up and eats, this is huge. I mean, I think it's hard for us to get a hold of how... uh, He's, he's breaking out of an entire identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at least he's redefining that. And uh, anyway, it's just the whole, the whole trajectory of Luke, as you've been pointing out, is from birth to the end of it, when Paul ends up in Rome, is the movement out to the nations. Yeah. And, and, that, and that's not going to happen uh, if... Being, in a, being a Christian identity becomes the, the dietary laws. That's not going to happen. That's right. So how does the Old Testament predict this? Or does it? How does it, how does it predict it? Well, the meaning of a Messiah or for us, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful question. And I'm going to take a stab at it, but I, I really want to hear what others have to say. I, I think it's important to kind of hold attention when we read the Old Testament. You know, on the one hand, we do believe Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. Like, this is very, very clear, right? If you read any New Testament author, they are always quoting what we know as the Old Testament to basically say this is the fulfillment of this, right? That um, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets uh, and, you know, the, the son of David, the anointed Messiah. On the other hand, it's important not to read the Old Testament as a crystal ball, right? That if anyone just had the right clues, they could have guessed what had happened. Um, but I do think that the full welcome of the Gentiles, I mean, I, I just think, now hindsight's twenty twenty. You know, but if you read the book of Isaiah, I've given you to the, you know, as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth, right? This is very, very clear. Uh, Or, for example, uh, there's this great psalm where it, I I can't quote it verbatim, but it, it talks about all these pagan people. And then it says, on the great day of the Lord, it shall be said, um, uh, in Zion, you were born. 
which is a way of basically saying you're part of the covenant. Uh, or you can look in the book of Genesis where the priest Melchizedek, who isn't of the covenant people, comes to bless Abraham, right? We could find a hundred of these examples that all point to Israel being a blessing so God's salvation can reach to the end of the world. Uh, and certainly the Isaiah 53, the suffering servant psalm, has very interesting things to say about God's anointed. But, you know, the other side of it is, is that people's worldview was such that Jesus was a great surprise. Um, and I don't think that's a failure of the scripture itself. I just think it, it speaks to uh, people's uh, inability to comprehend the scriptures and to lose touch with their identity. And people were really expecting, I think, a military messiah or maybe a really holy rabbi, but no one really expected at the time uh, someone who would look like a peasant, welcome the unclean, die on a cross, rise again, and then shatter all the boundaries that for the last 500 plus years have been so sacred. So it's kind of an interesting thing. So are we living, are we still living in this period of breaking down class distinctions? Are we living out this promise of God's covenant to everyone? And, and I'm curious, who's we? Because it's, I mean, I'm with you, but I want to, I'm, I'm curious, who's we? Uh, well, those of us on earth today, you know, in the situations that we're in today, and, and across the world. I mean, if this is true for Peter, then it's true for all of us. Mm -hmm. I think. <laughs> I'm asking you. I don't know. <laughs> it's, yes, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm just leaving space. And so you've heard Martha ask a question, you know, are, are, are these, are these distinctions, are they, are they eroding today? And, and I threw out the question, who's the we? I, I think that's an important question as well. What, what do y'all think? How is this passage alive? Well, I think this is a wonderful question. And uh, I think you've gone a long way to addressing it. I think what I would add is that uh, in our day, how do we divide the we from the them? <laughs> and we have all kinds of little definitions about them. Uh, the way in which we objectify others and and Christ calls us out of that kind of more narrow identity. Um, I was just thinking today of my good fortune of living in Africa for 10 years. Uh, I had to learn to understand people with whom I had nothing in common. Uh, and to say that you are my brother or you are my sister, uh, my very family uh, is quite a statement when you think about, well, what would you say about a, a Chinese whatever, or a, you see what I'm trying to say, the, the stranger. What, what's the ultimate foundation of our identity? Mm. And the other thing I would add is that, to me, the, the prime example of where this is in the Old Testament, which sets off the whole thing, is the whole covenant is with Abraham is given so that he will be a blessing to the nations. So that particular interpretation of the covenant is that 
eventually it's for everybody. Yeah. I think with our, you know, multinational connections, the us and them has changed over time. You know, in that time, it was the Jews and the Gentiles. Now it's, you know, the Americans versus, you know, people in Africa or people in Asia. I think that, um, that as our situation changes as individuals and we encounter people of different faiths, different creeds, um, that, that we are continually called to, um, to include those people who we don't have a lot in common with, like you said, Philip. Um, and, and I think, I think that's one of the things that I appreciate about St. Michael's and also about um, the church in Bend is that they are trying to be more inclusive of who is the them. And, you know, maybe for us in our situation, the homeless is them or maybe the immigrant is them. Um, you know, something that we are not familiar with and not comfortable with initially. Um, yeah. Really, really great comments and, and questions. I, I, what, what I can say, the reason I said, who's the we, is, you know, because, I mean, if we look at the world at large, I mean, no, the world's just as much of a mess as it's always been. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's division, there's polarization, there's fighting. Uh, and, and anyone who reads the news, I mean, you get really aware of that. And, um, but for me, the question is the church, right? So are we, and, you know, in, in our communities, are, are we um, seeking to grow our capacity to remind ourselves that uh, any identity that isn't uh, baptismal is secondary? Right. So like all these ways that we, you know, identify ourselves and, and you can think of like the, the polarizing things in our, our culture around ideology, around race, around politics, around I'm not knocking that. That's there's nothing wrong with having um, uh, with caring about uh, matters of politics. There's nothing wrong with having stances on social issues. There's nothing wrong with having whatever different opinions. But uh, to be a Christian you know, my job as a priest, that what I took a vow to do before God and everyone else is basically to say, I'm going to hold anyone who wants to be part of my community accountable uh, to reminding themselves that um, the deepest part of our identity is that we have been buried with Christ and uh, raised again. Uh, meaning that like my vision for Christian community isn't when we virtue signal to each other saying, why don't we be a like-minded community where we all have the same uh, opinions, where we're all the, you know, the same people. But my vision for Christian community is when you get all sorts of different people, different people who care about different things, um, people who in the world might not ever be friends uh, people who in the world might never have each over, you know, ha have people over for dinner, but they all gather around the, the altar to receive the bread and the wine, and they proclaim that they're family, you know, and to me, that's what the church is. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing, and so anyway, I, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of what gets me, like, fired up. I love whenever the church, like, you know, gets to be the church, and, um, and people who otherwise wouldn't, 
ever associate gather into the name of Christ. And that's kind of what Peter and Cornelius represent in a sense. This passage also was reminding me, and I, and I like your description about the sense of Jewish hospitality, but I'm reminded of a book that I just recently gave away, and I have to confess I didn't read. It was about um, tourism and hospitality in this era. And now I'm kind of wishing I would have read that book because it might have given some more clues about like when it says Peter was staying at this lodging, you know, well, did he live there? Was he a guest? Was he, you know, was this his place because it was close to the sea? I, you know, I mean, I'm just a little curious about how people organize their living circumstances and traveling about. And um, I think we get one little vision of this through bad movies or something, but but there was a reality to that and people were very much more used to traveling and walking long distances and and not worrying so much about whether they had all the right equipment or whatever they just went mm -hmm. yeah no text message i'm on my way they just you just kind of got to go no no uh no reservations no you just that the world worked differently but it was a really it worked it was a well you know, we, we often, you know, how do they live without their phones? How do they live without mm -hmm. a phone call? How do they live? They did just fine. You know, they traveled and they figured out a system that worked. And but it is interesting. It does remind me of being a Peregrino on the community of Santiago. Mm. You just get up every day and you're not exactly sure what's going to happen. But it always worked out and after a while i think one of the messages of being a pilgrim is that you learn that it will work out you it increases well at least for me it increased my sense of faith mm -hmm. yeah that's good so one detail about this passage that um uh that i just want to point out uh in verse 19 um, while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down uh, to them without hesitation for I've sent them. Can you think of a time in the Old Testament where God sends three men to announce some news to someone? <laughs> Do y'all have any, any, can, any, um, anything come to mind? I was at the last class, so I'm going to be silent on this one. Okay. Uh, Okay. So wasn't it when um, the three men came to visit Abraham and tell him he was going to have a, have a son? That's right. That's right. Yeah, I, I, I'm giving out uh, in, in the Tuesday class, um, um, someone have, has answered my Old Testament trivia three times in a row, and she received an Old Testament award. So uh, <laughs> that award out um, on Sundays. So I'll give you a chance next week to get your second star. But, but, and, and so in, in the book of Genesis, right, three men come to Abraham and, you know, Abraham's 99 years old, Sarah's a hundred and uh, well past their child rearing ages. And they've been following God on this dream for the last 30 plus years with nothing really to show for it. Promise hadn't come true. The three men come to Abraham and basically say, okay, it's time, you know, Sarah's going to have a child and 
Abraham laughs at them. So they not they name the child Isaac, which means sons of laughter, son of laughter. But but I share that because the three men come to say now something's about to be born, and this birth is significant for the covenant, right? So something's about to be born, Isaac, and the covenant depends on this birth. Well, three men are back. Something's about to be born, and this birth is significant for the covenant. But the birth is not of Isaac. It's going to be of Cornelius and people like him being grafted in. It is a new birth, right? The church is going to be born anew as um, as the Gentiles are welcomed in. And the rest of the book of Acts is going to be this story of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And there's all three, right? Whenever such a radical shift takes place. So um, I don't know if that's a connection that Luke intends, whether it's one that I made up or whether it's just kind of one of the neat things the spirit does. But um, I think that it's a significant parallel in my mind. Could I, I'd like to follow up on that. I think what you're saying is very important. And what I, the way I'd like to put it is taking the three men that visit Abraham. Mm-hmm. Augustine read that and said, well, that's clearly the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. No question about it. Yeah. Well, that may sound funny to us. And well, what do you mean? But the presupposition of Augustine and the early fathers, going back to the question about where is this in the Old Testament, assume that's all over the Old Testament, if you know how to read the Old Testament. Yeah. In other words, everything possibly has a meaning beyond its original intent. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fathers were not originalists. They didn't ask, you know, what did Abraham really mean by that? They had the key to it that Abraham didn't have. He's He's saying something that's got depth of meaning he doesn't know about. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they this this so they you ask them what where's Jesus in the old Old Testament? Their answer is everywhere if you know how to read it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and interestingly enough, this is now the cutting edge of biblical criticism, which is called figuralism. How do we interpret the Bible through figures? What are the figures about? They're about Jesus. Anyway. Isn't it nice whenever uh, the cutting edge interpretation um, is nothing more than saying they actually had it right? Um, <laughs> I love it. You know, so let's just go back there. Can you imagine if we did that in science or anything else? You know, but you know, the, the cutting edge is basically to admit that the early church fathers had the right approach, right? I think so. And mothers, you know, I know there's some church mothers too. Um, okay, let me keep reading and then we'll, we'll just kind of bracket this because it all builds, but I want to make sure that we are able to get through the whole chapter. So I'm going to go back to the book of Acts here and, uh, we'll, uh, continue with verse 23. The next day he got up and went with them and some of the believers from Joppa accompanied him. The following day they came to Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and he called together his relatives and friends on Peter's arrival, Cornelius met him and falling at his feet, worshiped him. But Peter made him get up saying, stand up, I'm only a mortal. And as he talked with him, he went in and found that many had assembled. And he said to them, you yourselves know that it's unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. 
So whenever I was sent for, I came without objection. Now, may I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius replied, four days ago at this hour at three o'clock, I was praying in my house when suddenly a man in dazzling clothes stood before me. He said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your alms have been remembered. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter, who stays with Simon, a tanner by the sea. Therefore, I sent for you immediately and you have been kind enough to come. So now all of us are here in the presence of God to listen to all that the Lord has commanded you to say. Then Peter began to say to them, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John had announced. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. How he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did, both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter said, can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They then invited him to stay for several days. Okay, just a few notes. Um, one is, I just think it's lovely that Cornelius calls together his relatives and close friends. And this is its own act of faith. I mean, can you imagine what that invitation would have sounded like? It would have been something if I'd said, hey, Philip, you know, come over to my house Saturday at noon. Um, an angel appeared to me and said, someone important is coming. You know, it takes a lot of faith to make that invitation and to receive it. But Cornelius is a man who has had this vision and he fears God and he, he wants everyone in his house. Uh, he packs his house. Um, he doesn't know what's coming, but he invites everyone over uh, on faith um, because he believes something important is going to happen. And when Peter arrives, uh, Cornelius falls at his feet and worships him. Uh, this seems just to be an honest mistake because, you know, unlike the case of Ananias, Peter doesn't announce that he's going to drop dead. Um, and Peter just says, you know, get up. Um, I'm just immortal. Um, and Peter then gives his speech. And uh, it's interesting in verse 28 where Peter says, you yourselves know that it's unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. Now, I'm going to be curious what you think about this, but I read this as more uh, Luke really needing to set up the stage than anything. 
because, I mean, remember, Peter's been with Jesus for three years. It's not that Peter is just now realizing uh, that it's okay to associate with Gentiles. For three years, Jesus went around, you know, inviting Gentiles, going over to Gentiles' homes and touching lepers. And, um, you know, it's not like Jesus himself didn't have interaction with Gentiles. And so I think Peter's being a little dramatic here as if he's never come near a Gentile in his entire life. To be with Jesus was to sometimes go into these Gentile regions and to do ministry. But I think for the sake of effect, it's a really you know, interesting thing to say to set up the scene. Um, Cornelius then replays what happens. And then in verse 34, uh, Peter says, I truly understand that God shows no partiality. And I think that's probably right. I think this is the moment that Peter truly understands. Um, you know, hanging out with the Gentiles, uh, blessing them, healing them, whatever it is, you know, whatever else he did with Jesus, um, that's not enough. Um, what's called for is to call them brother and sister. What's called for is to be part of one family, to be members of one covenant. It's not only that, you know, Jews are in the covenant and they're called to bless the Gentiles. It's that Gentiles now get to be grafted in. And in verse 34, Peter says, this is the moment I truly understand that God is not actually partial towards the people of Israel in quite the same way that we've always imagined that God is partial to us, but that um, any human being of any tongue, tribe, people, or nation is a child of God. And by the way, whenever in the church we talk about one holy Catholic and apostolic church, that word Catholic, it was never meant to refer to any kind of structure or the Roman Catholic church. Um, the word Catholic means universal, and it's a word that originally referred to, you know, as the book of Revelation says, people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. It's a word that says God is not partial to any tongue. God is not partial to any tribe, people, or nation, but that all are brought in. That's what the Catholicity of the church is, uh, just kind of as a note. Um, as Peter proclaims the gospel in verse 36, he says, he is Lord of all. That's not just a throwaway line. That's in contrast to kind of the pagan gods where there was a local deity uh, and the different pagan gods had dominion over different zip codes, kind of the way our mayors and governors do. And part of the proclamation uh, of Israel is that there's only one God and that he is the Lord of all, not just the God of the people of Israel, but the God of Cornelius, the God of the Gentiles. Um, and then after that, we just have Peter proclaiming the gospel to Cornelius, because remember, Cornelius was well-versed in Jewish scripture and law because he was a God-fearer, but that doesn't mean that he understands uh, what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And so Peter retells that story. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. God raised him from the dead. And then there's that great verse 41 the reminder that they got to eat and drink with Jesus after he rose from the dead. That's just an important verse to remind us that whenever we talk about the doctrine of resurrection, we're not, we're not quite talking about the same thing as the platonic idea of the immortality of the soul. It's not just that 
you know, our inner essence disappears to a formless heaven, but there's a resurrected body that is at the central preaching of the faith. And even though it's a body much different than the body we now inhabit, the resurrection of the body is an important piece of uh, Christian teaching. And I think um, Luke probably includes this in Peter's speech to differentiate the Christian belief from other more platonic beliefs where the soul was seen to be immortal. And then finally, verse 43, all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Martha, to your question, where is this in the Old Testament? If you're to ask Peter, he would say all the prophets testify that all the prophets in the Old Testament, one way or another, testify even if they do so indirectly, they all testify that the forgiveness of sins is available through the name of Jesus. Uh, And if you want to know kind of what is the gospel really about, everyone has to answer that question in their own way. But for me, this is the summary statement. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. That the forgiveness of sin for me is at the heart of what it means to believe in the Christian gospel. So Peter's giving the speech, and the Holy Spirit doesn't even wait for Peter to finish. It says that while he is still speaking, the Holy Spirit interrupts and basically falls upon all of those who are gathered. And at this point, there's nothing Peter can do. He doesn't have time to think about it. You know, they don't call a council to say, you know, what are the pros and cons of welcoming the Gentiles? He's just kind of faced with this moment where the Gentiles are clearly filled with God's spirit. So what else can he do? He's like, I guess we're going to baptize them and then we'll figure out what this means later. And that's exactly what they do. So I'll go ahead and cut it off there. We've got about 15 minutes and we'll see uh, how this is resonating with you. I'm going to have to think about all of this. This And I'm very appreciative that you brought brought me anyway to, to seeing the specifics that are laid out here. Uh-huh. And, uh, and what specifics? Well, I think when you talk about your image of um, the resurrection of the body, mm-hmm. I have to think about that a little bit more. Yeah. Because uh, I think I fall into that plural what whatever you call this the um yeah the longevity of the soul that the soul was the focus of it um i do have come to more understand the role of forgiveness as being a key to god's love for us and also identifying our humanity you know i mean i think it's a two-way street Forgiveness reminds us that we're humans as much as it reminds us of God's love for us. Yeah. Makes me feel better anyway. <laughs> um, I will say that I've been taking a little class from the Eastern Orthodox priest in town, not because I'm going to convert, but because I've been interested in that orthodoxy. And they're very keen on baptism. I mean, if you're not baptized into the Eastern Orthodox Church, you're not inside their sense of 
being Christian. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious about the role of baptism in a non-Orthodox way. Um, so that's, that's how I, I'm looking at this, this end of this chapter. Well, so one thing I'll just say, Martha, I won't, I won't, you know, we'll leave some room for others uh, and, and to either to respond to your comments or to add their own. But what, what, what I'll offer with some empathy there is that, you know, so here's Peter and he's been invited into Cornelius's home and everyone's there. And Peter, you know, he's got 60 seconds, really. And so he just like, boom, 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 boom. He kind of condenses the whole Christian faith into a paragraph and it just hits you one after the other. Uh, and so they can kind of leave your head spinning, you know, whether it's the resurrection of the dead or the role of baptism or healing people oppressed by the devil, you know, it, we could have an entire class, I think, on Peter's speech itself, you know, so, uh, any comments, uh, in, in response to Martha's or, or your own comments about the reading? Well, I would like to say and add to that, that the baptism is not, it, I mean, from this small um, paragraph, it, it doesn't say that baptism is necessary for salvation. It does say that the belief, he who believes in him, and the baptism, I think, you know, is more the outward sign of the decision that you've made in inside of you. But it doesn't, but it doesn't say that, you know, if they're not baptized, they're not accepted. So I'm just throwing that out too, that, that, you know, <laughs> um, there are many churches who believe different things about baptism when and you know whether if you're baptized as a child um you know that that counts so to speak but it doesn't talk about that it, it, it really talks about making the decision um and just for, from my uh perspective so i was baptized in a dutch reformed church in holland my parents really were not believers and we really never went to church mm. um and then when i and i didn't you know grow up really believing in god and when i went to mexico and encountered these evangelical christians and kind of came to to believe in god um you know that seemed to be enough now i did actually want to get baptized later on because I felt like I wanted to kind of seal that commitment and decision, but it, it, they were two different, they were two different occurrences. You know, it wasn't until many years later that I was rebaptized, but I felt like I wanted to do that because now this was my decision and not my parents' decision. And I think you know, just because of the church that I was in, that was okay at, at the time. Um, but I really felt like my life changed when I made that decision to accept Jesus. That's when my life changed mm. significantly. Yeah. So Thank I you. don't know. That probably muddles it more than it than it 
simplifies it, but you know, that was my experience because I'd never really been involved, actively involved in a church at all mm. before that time. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Really appreciate it. You know, in, in our creed, um, you, you know, so, so here we have, you know, we don't want to take Acts 10, right, and turn it into systematic theology and say this is a universal thing, because what we would probably say is that, well, this is how people are saved. Uh, an angel comes to them, and then um, they believe the gospel, and then they receive the Holy Spirit, and then they're baptized, and that's the order. You know, I mean, there, there's kind of a, um, this is just a moment. One of the things that we always want to uphold with God is that God is free. You know, God is free. This is a foundational thing that we say about God. God is not bound. God, God gets to do what God wants to do, and so we never get to really pin God down. But in the early church, they talked a lot about baptism, you know, and, and what's the, what, what do we, what do we believe about baptism? And um, what uh, ended up uh, in our Nicene Creed, which um, uh, I adhere to as a priest and kind of hold myself accountable to is we talk about one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And so, uh, Julie, I think your story is beautiful and that is, that is part of God's work in your life. Uh, but if someone comes to me and says, okay, I was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but I was two years old, I don't remember it, let's do it again. I don't have the liberty as a priest to say, okay, we'll do it again, right? Because, you know, part of where the church landed was one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, but I will say, you know, this is not the first time, right, that the church has thought about what is the role of baptism in our salvation. Uh, is it a sign? Is it representative of something that already exists or does it bring a new thing into relationship you know christians have uh, landed on various uh, positions and debated this throughout the centuries and uh, if you want to know where the episcopal church stands i just always point people to to our creed that's that and the catechism in the back of the prayer books kind of the best we get yeah i guess i'd like to respond briefly uh, I have to confess that the theology of baptism remains to me of the more obscure uh, <laughs> aspects, and I've never felt that I understood it properly. Um, but I have been helped by one thought, which has led me to enter step by step into what this may mean. Namely, that baptism is before all, anything else, not something we do, it's something God does. That we when we baptize a child, we take the child there in faith, and we say in that context, having done this, you are marked as Christ's own forever. Mm -hmm. That's not something we do. Right. So the claim, it seems to me, is that through baptism, we are incorporated into Christ's body. Now, how that happens, that's God's business, and I don't really pretend to know how to answer it. Except that I do think, however, that going back to the Orthodox, uh, they have behind this, we're the only church who really knows who Jesus is. And so if you're going to get baptized and you want it to work, it's got to be into the right, right thing. I don't happen to believe that. Um, but again, I want to confess that this is a, uh, it's called a great holy mystery. And, and I have to say that that 
That suits me fine. <laughs> but I do think it's important to realize that our claims about the sacrament do not rest, first of all, about something we're doing. There's something we believe God does. And I think that's a big difference. Amen. Thank you. Helpful. <laughs> That's helpful. Two quick comments. Philip, where were you the dean Berkeley at Yale? Yes. So Philip was the dean of the of a really high profile seminary for five, seven years and eight. Eight years. <laughs> he confessed that he didn't fully understand baptism. So I just want you to know you're okay if you don't understand all the mysteries of the faith. That's just one thing I'll say. Uh, and the other is it's just a good reminder that faith like that we deal with mystery. And so there are times when it's more appropriate to say, I don't understand, but I believe, or I, I surrender to this, or, you know, I don't understand, but I know that it's important when it's more appropriate to say that than to say, oh, I understand everything, you know? And when we, when we get to baptism, we're not supposed to understand everything. Well, thank God. <laughs> I, to add on to that, this is a sort of personal thing, and I hope you'll bear with me. When I retired, I said, what are you going to do to you with your life? Mm -hmm. And because you're not running a school anymore, you're not out there in the, you know, in the battleground. And one of the things that has come to me is I am going to explore the basic Christian mysteries. Who is Jesus Christ? What do I really think about that? Mm -hmm. And so I've Every day, I begin to move deeper and deeper into the basic mysteries of our church. That's what I've assigned myself. I'm going to be dead soon enough, and I'd like to get this sorted out in my head. Mercifully, God, God is merciful, and when we get to the seminar with Augustine, he'll be merciful to me. <laughs> is that your view of heaven, seminars with Augustine? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> funny. That's funny. I'll tell you a very funny story. Uh, <laughs> I went to a church school and we had to take sacred studies. And our 11th grade class was on Christian, the history of the church and its doctrines. And I never will forget Mr. Davis, my teacher, came in with a copy of St. Augustine's Confessions. 11th grade, I think I was. And he said, Gentlemen, we were all gentlemen then. Uh, you're going to read this. You're not going to like it. But he's smarter than all of you put together. So read it. <laughs> okay. Sorry about that. I've always remembered it. <laughs> so one of the, the tensions that, you know, I hope that we can hold as we read passages like this and as we read scripture, and it really is a tension. Um, on the one hand, what we're talking about is very, it's mysterious, right? Baptism, incorporation into Christ's body, um, a, a covenant where Israel is chosen, but we're all chosen too. I mean, like, the, you know, the mysteries that we're given to hold, they're mysteries. Absolutely. They're not comprehended or figured out the way that one can understand um, you know, calculus. It's not like, hey, with enough time, I'm going to master this the way that I've mastered the law or the way that I've mastered geography. You don't master the Christian faith. 
So we hold that over here. But with the other hand, lest we forget, this is very, very simple, right? What does it say in verse 43? Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. That's not, that's very, it's, it's very straightforward. Very straight up. Yep. God so loved the world that he sent his only son that all who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3, it's very simple. And so, like, if we can hold both of those, the deepest mysteries, right, that we can only, we can move deeper and deeper into them. But they remain. Right? Over here with, this is actually really simple over here. Um, I think that if we can hold both of those at the same time, that's a really good place to be. Well, just in parting, there's a wonderful difference between a secret and a mystery. Hmm. When you find out a secret, it's not a secret anymore. Yeah. When you find out about a mystery, you know a little more than you did before, but it's still a mystery. Yeah. <laughs> well said. Yeah. Okay. I think it keeps us humble. What's that? I think it keeps us humble. Because, yes, it does. Because we don't figure it out exactly. It leaves it leaves things much more um, open to you know just being able to accept things we don't understand and therefore also people we don't understand or we don't maybe don't agree with yeah well and i think on that note i'm gonna I, i'll i'll share one more thing then i'll, I'll promise we'll sign off because i want to honor time you know this is a moment in time where everyone's so serious right everyone and and i get it right there's there's um, some anxiety around um, there's always anxiety around election cycles. There's uh, fear over the pandemic. Everyone is so serious right now. Uh, and I think it's important to be reminded, since you said the word humble, that the word humanity, humility, and humor all share the same etymological root. And if we're in touch with mystery, we're not going to be so you know, serious all the time. And we're going to be a little bit more open. I'm not saying that we're going to think we're not going to uh, act responsibly. But if we can just, you know, be human beings, and if we can remain humble and open to mystery, that's going to free us up. That That's going to metaphorically free Cornelius up to see Peter and free Peter up to see Cornelius. You know, we don't we don't get towards deep healing by being really serious, you know. And I don't think our society understands that. So if we can just kind of hold on to mystery, it's going to serve us well as a people. Um, thank you all so much for joining. Thank and, you. Uh, y'all are awesome. So I'll see you this time next week, okay? Okay. Bye. 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 Bye.